This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. You know, I adore success stories, and today I have one for you with my guest. It's the story of a young musician who grew up in a small town, a young man who excelled early on at the clarinet and piano and had the opportunity, with thanks to community orchestras, to be featured as soloist a half dozen times before he went to college. Now, in rural areas, that is a luxury. But it is still born out of extraordinary talent. And since then, his gifts have assured him of a life recognized as an outstanding professional musician with a global reach. Pianist and conductor Kelly Kuo has made his name as a maestro of prominence, conducting a diverse range of operatic and symphonic repertoire. He is a recipient of a Schulte Foundation U.S. Career Assistant Award for Young Conductors, and as a keyboardist, he is the only pianist to have studied with two pupils of the Russian virtuoso, Vladimir Horowitz. He was recently designated as the new director of the Reno Chamber Orchestra. He is presently the artistic director of the Oregon Mozart Players and associate artistic director of American Lyric Theater. In 2008, Maestro Kuo became the first conductor of Asian descent to lead a performance at the Lyric Opera of Chicago with Porgy and Bess. The Cincinnati Enquirer has this to say of Kelly Kuo. He is a leader of exceptional musical gifts, who has a clear technique on the podium and an impressive rapport with audiences. Well, the rapport that review speaks of is widely understood amongst his colleagues as well. Known for his approachable and graceful attitude, this is a young man who develops meaningful relationships with those he works with. And it is with pride that I can claim an unusual fact about Kelly Kuo. He and I grew up in the same part of Eastern Oregon, 30 miles apart and 30 years between us, an area that would usually spawn the likes of country Western musicians. We both sought out the wide, classically rich world before us and became successful along the way. And the interest really lies in the six degrees of separation that we share today. Well, I am thrilled to have him on center stage with me this morning. Good morning, Kelly Quo, and thank you for being with me on center stage. Good morning, Pamela. It is such an honor to be here talking with you, and I'm looking so much forward to our conversation. Me too. I mean, isn't it a joy that we have both so have so much to share, being that geographically we're kind of bound? <laughs> Absolutely. It's just amazing. Uh, the six degrees of separation you're talking about and how that gets smaller and smaller and smaller <laughs> as the world gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I should tell my listeners that after all these years, the first time I met Kelly Quo was just this past summer when we were both in eastern Oregon and eastern Washington. We sat down to have a cup of coffee, which I think, Kelly, lasted for about three hours, didn't it? If it did, it didn't seem that long. <laughs> time just flew by. We just It was like catching up with an old friend, even though, like you said, it was the first time we actually met face-to-face. Incredible, and incredible that we actually met with the Columbia River as our playland in the background. So it, it is <laughs> it really, this is summing up those six degrees of separation today. 
You know, um, you're a distinguished and respected musician, and many adore you. I want to speak a little of the silver lining of growing up in a small town. Um, This is something that you have never been afraid to speak about, and you are proud of your background. How did you think that that set you apart in your early musical life journey? That's a great question, Pamela. I think more than anything, it it kept me grounded. I Mm. had no expectation growing up of being a professional musician. I was the oldest son of an immigrant Taiwanese family, and as expected, I was supposed to pursue something science-oriented, either medicine or engineering, um, something very much more typical for um, an Asian American of my generation. But I was very fortunate that I was in an area that, despite its landlocked and very remote uh, geography, there was still music, mm-hmm. and music in a way that was saturating the community in more ways than one could have possibly imagined. We had a marching band that in its heyday occupied about one-fourth of the high school population, so almost 225 out of um, out of 1,000 students in the student body were members of the marching band. And this is with uh, basically one high school band director and one junior high band director and a couple of assistants who were responsible for training pretty much everyone from sixth grade until 12th grade, with very, very few taking private lessons of any sort. Hmm. So even with in that kind of environment, in northeastern Oregon, I was able to find the camaraderie and all those things that you expect music to teach young people, how to be better human beings, how to work with teens, mm-hmm. how to, um, you know, work in a way that has a greater goal. Just like sports, there is something that is magical about what music teaches to people. And I was very, very fortunate to have that in, in Hermiston. That's incredible. Tell me about that that band director. Um, are you still close? Is he is, is is he still living? Is he in the area? He is absolutely still living. He's he was rather young, um, I think, when he was teaching us. And his name is Mark Lane. For a little while after he left Hermiston, he went across the river to I believe Kennewick, Washington, and was a band director in Tri Cities before then going on to a couple other areas and then ended up at Central Washington University where he was an associate professor for a little while. And after that, um, I think he is now working uh, for another private company um, and has left academia in terms of a full time position. But he is very much alive. In fact, I have a very funny story, Pamela. Isn't that? Oh, great. Later on, when I, I met up with him, you know, as most high school students looking at their teachers, um, we all thought that Mr. Lane was old. <laughs> when we, you know, he had children, he had uh, a wife, and they were always present throughout all the band practices and whatnot. But we very much thought he was old. And later on in life, when I um, met up with him, I must have been post-grad school, maybe in doing my first uh, professional engagements already. And we met up over coffee of some sort, and I asked him, how old were you when you were teaching us in in high school? And, he, and he, I think he said something like he was in his mid-20s. And that just made me howl with laughter that wow. someone that young was thought of as old. So I'm thinking, wow, I wonder how my college kids thought I was. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when I was teaching University of Texas, <laughs> I must have been ancient, dark ages, you know, gosh, pre-internet. <laughs> All of that. It was just, it's amazing. But yeah, Mark Lane 
and his family are very much alive. In fact, he has spawned two of his uh, children, I think, are both in um, music. They're both band directors. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh, my gosh. They carry on the baton. You know, Mm -hmm. I speak often on this show about the profound importance of mentoring in our lives, Kelly. And I can imagine that he was very much a mentor to you in more ways than just music from the sound of it. Absolutely. I think he set a great example for all of us, except for the eating of Rolaids at every single band <laughs> practice that we had. Uh, gosh, I'm sure we gave him a lot of heartburn from the way we <laughs> probably <didn't> execute <laughs> his, uh, his ideal scenarios as far as the band choreography. But my goodness, I mean, things have changed so much. They had to do things by hand at that point. Right. Now they have computer-dated drafting, doing all of these routines. Anyways, Mark was great, and he certainly taught in a way that made people want to, to be a part of the program. Mm-hmm. And you have to mm-hmm. in order to attract the kind of um, numbers that he got into a band program. I mean, normally some, you would expect that sports would be dominant in a rural area or um, FFA, which is an you know, agricultural farming um, mm-hmm. community type mm-hmm. of organization. But, and yes, those were popular, but band was equally popular, if not more important. Um, during the football season, at least, I think I remember people going to the scene, the halftime show, because they wanted to see what the band did. And then because the football team wasn't necessarily, um, let's say, exceptional at that time, people might have been seen leaving after our halftime show. (laughs) (laughs) So we know who the stars were. And it's interesting to me, you started as a clarinetist and and you were, of course, a pianist at the same time. Correct. I actually started out on violin when I was younger Ah. um, as sort of an entryway into piano. My mom really wanted us to study with a piano teacher in town, but we were too young in her eyes. Um, the piano teacher's eyes. And so she suggested we study Suzuki violin with her son, Ron Lessinger, mm-hmm. who ended up, he was in high school at the time. And my mom had thought that we would potentially be able to um, proceed in a way quickly so that the piano teacher who would then play for the Suzuki recitals could see how well we were progressing and maybe consider taking this on in the next year. And that's exactly what happened. Um, little did we know, Ron Wessinger ended up going to Oberlin and then New England Conservatory and now plays in the first violin section of the Oregon Symphony and is um, quite uh, quite known in the Oregon community in new music, in fact. And so he, he was my violin teacher and his mother taught me from third grade, I believe, up until my junior year in high school. And wow. she sent us from that point on to uh, Leonard Richter in Walla Walla, which is only about an hour away. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's these mentors um, that they had, that I had growing up around me, I was very, very fortunate. And it was when you asked about clarinet, because um, once Ron went off to Oberlin, he sent us to his violin teacher named Betty Phoebus. I don't know if you remember her from Pendleton. In Pendleton, her, Oregon. That's right. Correct. And her daughter, Julie, is a bassoonist, professional bassoonist, I believe, plays the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. Yes. So mm-hmm. there's something in the water in Northeastern Oregon, there I'll tell you. Is. There is a lot. And unfortunately, Betty passed away shortly after we started studying with her, and there was no one else to teach us um, in the community, at least that we found. And so I, that's when I picked up clarinet. And this is a funny story, too, Pamela, because 
in sixth grade, the band director came in and basically you put your first choice and a second choice down on the paper. My first choice was trumpet. Oh. And what he did was hand me a trumpet mouthpiece, gave me no advance guidance and just said, make a noise. I couldn't make a noise on that trumpet mouthpiece to save my life. <laughs> my second choice was clarinet and Pretty much anyone can make a squawk out of a clarinet mouthpiece with a reed on it. And that's what I did. And that's how I ended up with clarinet in sixth grade. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And then on to the piano and then on to the conducting podium. And, hey, we've got to say along the way that you actually are the owner now of a very special piano from Pendleton, Oregon. That's right. From you the... came across this during our discussion in, in the Tri-Cities. This is the Six Degrees of Separation, Kelly Quo, which I love. You you own Mrs. Roy's beautiful grand piano, and you still have it with you. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's a 1917 Steinway O, um, <laughs> mahogany in color, and it's. I remember when we got it, it was such a luxury because I'd been playing on an upright piano, a Baldwin Acrosonic that we still have in the Tri-Cities, in fact. Um, but I'd been playing that for my entire life, and That's it was wonderful. always a challenge. I remember playing in competitions because those were always on grand pianos, and mm-hmm. I didn't really have a lot of experience playing on them except for when I went and had piano lessons. Mm-hmm. And of course, my piano teachers all had grand pianos, but it was a rare thing. You know, once a week, getting to play it for a half hour to an hour at the most um, is very different than someone who is in Juilliard prep and has you know grand piano since the time that they were five years old. It's, it's very, very different. And I was very fortunate that um, that didn't hinder me in the, in the long run. Exactly. And, yeah, but very, very fortunate to have this beautiful piano. It still has original soundboard, original keys, and um, I love the way it sounds. Oh, and with you at the keyboard. And I've got to say, I studied with Mrs. Roy's husband, Ted Roy. And mm. he he was my, well, my second voice teacher out there. But my first really important voice teacher that sent me on to the University of Oregon, as you eventually followed. Um, and you know what's, what's really interesting? I mean, we're talking about all this past history and all these things that draw us together. And right as we speak... Opera News is hot off the press with a big story on you. A wonderful interview. <laughs> you are making waves, Kelly Quo. You know, I'm very, very fortunate, and nothing is given. Um, and it just, I, I'm just very, very lucky to have had my village of people and mentors around me throughout my mm. entire life, helping to set up um, these opportunities for me. Um, I do feel like I work hard. I, I know that. When I was a college student in piano, I felt like I was having to play catch up because I certainly didn't have the background and training that a lot of my musician colleagues had for a decade or more growing up. And I felt like I just had to work harder than everyone else in order to even catch up, mm. let alone be considered on the same level or um, or more. It's just really mm-hmm. lucky, 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 lucky. And I guess all of us who are successful in music have a lot of luck come our way. and But it really does have to do with our village. No one out there is able to make a career in music without their village. That's really beautifully said, is. Kelly. Beautifully said. I love it. Village. I usually talk about the team, but a village is just like you, so inviting and so graceful. Um, wow. Well, you have conducted over 90 operas now. I mean, talk about getting ahead in life. 
Um, well, that's not exactly true. I have a repertoire <laughs> of over 90 operas, but that is as an assistant, as a coach, as a conductor. But I am having to say, Pamela, that I'm coming to the point where I'm now having conducted more than I've actually played. And that has been a long time coming. But I, I do yeah. consider the repertoire that I've learned over the years um, to be something I should be able to conduct. So. What what a landmark! I want to make it just clear clear it up because I don't want to. <laughs> you don't want to be boastful. Not one hundred percent true. <laughs> um, I'm helping you be boastful here. Come on, go with me. Um, <laughs> one of the pieces that you've been associated with that I'm I'm really interested in is the piece Charlie Parker's Yardbird, written by Swiss American composer Daniel Schneider with a libretto by Bridget Wimberly. You know, Kelly, this is a really complex piece, which was originally commissioned by Philadelphia and Gotham Opera. How did this job come to you as as conductor? You know, it's a very interesting question, and I don't know who referred me to them. Uh, the Lyric Opera Chicago was going to uh, produce this piece, and somehow they remembered me from my debut uh, with Porgy and Bess, even though I was not the main conductor for that show. But somehow through that experience, um, I must have made an impact on one or two of the people making that decision as to who um, should conduct. I always feel like I'm never the first choice for anything, Pamela. I'm just being candid. I always feel like I'm, I must have been like third, fourth, or never even on the list to begin with, and somehow something comes my way because person X or person B turns it down or is not available, and somehow I get lucky and get an offer. And that's how I honestly felt about Charlie Parker's Yardbird, um, because I, I'm not trained in jazz in, in, mm-hmm. the, in the real sense of the world mm-hmm. word, and I've always felt that jazz is something I wish I could do better, and I and so admire the um, musicians in my life and, and my colleagues who are completely adept at jazz and the language, and especially the oral skills mm-hmm. required of uh, the improvisation. It's just an area that I've honestly felt like a person out of water, you know, fish out of water mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of that harmonic language. But because this music was completely written down and in a way that made sense to me um, when I first took a look at the music, um, there's, of course, there is some bebop and the, the storytelling that occurred on stage. You know, I, I did, I do very much believe in having stories on stage that are equally diverse as mm-hmm. the people in the United States. And for that opportunity to come to my lap was a true blessing. And even though we only had, I think, a couple performances, um, mm-hmm. They were not able to extend the run because it was at the Harris Theater in Chicago and not at the Lyric Opera Chicago's main stage. Um, but we still had uh, Larry Brownlee as the title character. He, of course, premiered the role himself. And a lot of the principal cast uh, were from that original cast where I had already performed it somewhere else. And it was fantastic. We had, of course, um, superb musicians in the pit. Uh, slightly different in that when I did it later in Seattle, and that we had single strings. Mm-hmm. The piece was composed for either single strings or um, ex- expanded string section. Mm. And from our experience in Chicago, I felt like um, 
and when I ended up doing the Seattle, if we had the option of expanding the strings, I would very much like that. Unfortunately, we were able to do that. But Chicago is a great experience. Um, Will Liverman, in fact, who he's in Fire Shut Up My Bones in the Metropolitan Opera right now. He was Dizzy Gillespie uh, in that production. Mm. Just fantastic. And How I, exciting. Um, well, yeah, whether, a whether... lot of those, those casts were, are, are doing great things. Whether it's luck or hard work, we have you here right now conducting, and this is Charlie Parker's Yardbird. Kelly Quo, that is Yardbird. <laughs> you know, I, I think the story is so fascinating behind that. And, and it's, it's a fantastic, I guess, what we'd call chamber piece. And you're no stranger to chamber orchestras and ensembles. Um, with your work with uh, Oregon Mozart players, with your work in Sun River in, in Central Oregon. And I, I know you have a leaning towards Oregon, as so do I. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me, what is, the, what is the driving force right now in, in, and really determining focus for you in your musical life right now? Hmm. I don't know if it's changed, Pamela. It's, it's pretty much whatever is in my path mm-hmm. um, and when whatever doors are starting to open. I came about in the chamber orchestra only through opera and I just conducted Eugene Opera's production of Madama Butterfly and it turns out that one of the members of the orchestra who played that was also on the search committee for organ Mozart players and artistic director search and this uh, musician encouraged me to apply and I had no symphonic orchestral background at that point. Um, I was lucky just to have opera. And I know very well how difficult it is to cross over into both areas in the United States specifically. In Europe, it, it's not so much uh, seen as, um, as unexpected, but in the United States, there very much exists, I think, a, a gap between those two worlds. And one could argue one way or the other why that exists, but it, Regardless of that, it does exist. And so when the opportunity came to apply for this position, I thought, well, I'll just send my materials in, and if they don't think I have enough experience with a chamber orchestra or a symphonic orchestra, then that's their right to feel that way. Mm-hmm. I just sent my stuff in and was fortunately uh, advanced through several rounds and then eventually conducted a concert as a finalist and was offered a position. And that's really what started my, I guess, my journey in conducting chamber orchestras. Mm-hmm. And I found chamber orchestra very appealing to me because I love playing chamber music as a pianist. There's a certain amount of um, intimacy that exists in chamber orchestra mm. in, a, in a different way um, than a lot of symphonic orchestras. It's true. I think the best symphonic orchestras play their music as chamber music. There, there really is no question for me. Oh, that's but, an interesting comment. Yeah, yeah. But chamber orchestras, because of the size, 
Mm-hmm. You, if everyone is on the same team and studies their music in as a whole, not and knows exactly how their part fits in with everyone else, and then it basically becomes a chamber experience, a chamber music experience. Mm-hmm. And I love that, and oh, because and partly because you know, I wasn't trained as a conductor, uh, academically speaking. I I basically had some conducting lessons through my time at Houston Grand Opera and we had to conduct some stuff backstage. So we were given a couple lessons a year with uh, the tremendous Larry Ratcliffe and we were expected to not make uh, an embarrassment of ourselves or the company when conducting backstage. And that's how it all started. But at the same time, the rest of my training was essentially get on the podium with a pianist and try not to fail too much. And then when opportunities <laughs> come to conduct an orchestra, really try not to fail. Because once you do fail, it, your opportunities to conduct really pretty much stop, come to a standstill, and they don't come back. Well, it's very, very quick. And it's, it's an amazing chicken and the egg thing. You mm-hmm. can't really get experience as a conductor until mm-hmm. people hire you, mm-hmm. but people mm-hmm. aren't going to hire you until you have experience. So. Right. <laughs> You're getting it. And I don't think luck has anything to do with it with you, Kelly Quo. You know, you, you say you feel lucky. That's like imposter syndrome. You know, you feel you're, uh, you don't deserve it. You definitely do. It's out of hard work and grit. You, you have really worked you know, for your place in life. And that Opera News article right now really spells it out. You know, I, I can see now that we need about two hours for our interview, really. I mean, we could, first of all, we could reminisce about Eastern Oregon forever. Um, but I just want to ask you very quickly, um, your significance of conducting as a man of Asian descent, the great Gershwin opera, Porgy and Bess, was that a really landmark um, uh, significance for you? I think the piece itself plays a lot of significance for me. Getting to know that family, mm-hmm. that culture that makes up the artists that perform poor game best. And I'm not talking just about the ones on stage. I'm talking the one, about the ones in the orchestra, people who work backstage, stage management, the costumes. It's an entire huge family that exists because of that piece. There's a heritage associated with that piece that goes beyond racial barriers mm-hmm. and if you've been a part of that family, it doesn't ever leave you. It made all a lot of sense for me to do this, but I didn't get any rehearsal with orchestra in advance. Mm. So I, I had to actually just jump into the pit and conduct the orchestra <gasps> in two performances, two different casts, by the way, two different principals, set of principals for both performances, um, I think a day and a half apart from each other, and no rehearsal. That so is incredible. I, it takes a lot of chutzpah and a lot of naivete, I think, for that mm-hmm. to work. <laughs> and, and a lot of raw talent. And Kelly Quo, you are that man, and you're honorable, and you possess a big talent. But you also have a heart of gold and passion, and, and we can feel it. And I hope you'll keep paying it on forward. And uh, thank you so much for gracing my show today. Kelly Quo, please go to kellyquo.com for more information on this exciting artist. And I hope you'll visit my website at Center Stage with PamelaCoon.com for more information. In the meantime, stay safe out there. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. Center Stage.